Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're going to talk about conservation easements. According to the National Conservation Easement Database, a conservation easement is a voluntary legal agreement that permanently limits uses of the land in order to protect its conservation values. These easements are one option to protect a property for future generations. The government has supported the logic that donating productive land for environmental purposes is a worthy cause. As a result, many taxable benefits can accrue to the donor. However, the conservation easement is also rooted in controversy and deep IRS scrutiny. Unscrupulous promoters have focused on these transactions. The abuses occur when unrealistic and unsupported valuations are used to sell tax breaks to the high earners who are usually unrelated to the actual land. But has this IRS scrutiny killed the conservation easement? Is there room for a transaction with such a beneficial purpose? To help us understand the state of the conservation easement landscape and its usefulness going forward, I spoke with Michael Engelhart. Based in Stamford, Connecticut, Michael's practice works with high net worth clients and family offices in the areas of tax mitigation and insurance planning. His practice has been involved in many client land situations, and he is an expert in the space. Welcome aboard, Michael. Thanks, Fraser. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, we're going to be talking about something that has garnered a lot of interest over the last five to 10 years, even further back than that. And it's gotten a little bit of controversy recently, but it's definitely got some components that can be useful to large families, wealthy families, and that's the conservation easement. Take us through a definition of what a conservation easement is. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding amongst advisors and clients on the topic. Sure thing, Frazier. So a conservation easement is a voluntary legal agreement that permanently limits uses of land in order to protect it for conservation values, such as wildlife preservation, reducing the carbon footprint, endangered species, endangered flowers, watershed, things of that nature. So aside from the environmental positives that go into conservation easements and those types of benefits, they're interesting to a lot of people for tax purposes. Describe a little bit about what that looks like for a typical client. The tax benefit is the delta between what the landowner purchased the property for and the highest and best use value of the property. And if that landholder decides to permanently conserve the property through gifting an easement into perpetuity to a 501c3 land trust, they'll be removing the value of that property's development. And they can get a deduction for the difference between what they paid for the land and the highest and best use. So in effect, they're removing the land's development potential into perpetuity. So this is rooted in law and sort of general logic. I mean, it makes sense to me that if you're donating something of value and you get a deduction for it, it works. And that delta concept is consistent. What do you point to when you start taking the deduction and having that rooted into a framework that can be defended if it were called into question later? Sure. Conservation easement donations have to comply with conservation purposes as defined in IRC 170H in the code. A donated easement must be a true gift 
It must protect significant natural agricultural historical resources that either public agencies or 501c3 land trusts want to have conserved. So for those who have sort of looked at this before, and there's a little bit of an issue related to scrutiny from the IRS on these transactions, it's more than a little bit of an issue. They've been described as being listed transactions that will be looked at very closely. What makes the conservation easement controversial? Well, the thing that doesn't make it controversial is the law. So the law states that under IRC 178, that these are perfectly legal transactions. What makes them controversial, there's two things that make them controversial. One is that forever corner is controversial. And what I mean by the forever corner, the property is conserved through the easement granted to the 501c3 land trust into perpetuity, quote unquote, forever. And that concerns people that how can you see out that far? So that's one piece of the controversy. The other piece is, is that there have been some bad actors in the space. Anything that produces a tax deduction tends to have some bad actors to the space. And the IRS has taken a look at that to see, are the valuations legitimate? Are the highest and best uses legitimate? Is the property worthy of conservation? Things of that nature. So it sounds like that the role of formalities is very important, making sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. How do you think about that when you're advising people? Yeah, I think that the devil is in the details and you just said it right. So the role of process here is incredibly important. You know, first of all, the property has to be worthy of conservation. You have to pick a reputable 501c3 land trust that is doing this on, on a large scale. You have to build a business plan that is ready to operate. You may decide not to conserve the property. You may decide to go build a solar farm. And and that plan has to be ready to be operated. And it's completely very critical, I should say, to have a buttoned-up valuation and then get a desk audit of that valuation because the accuracy and the completeness of that qualified appraisal is absolutely important. So take us through that valuation process a little bit. What I'm hearing you say is that, you know, if you have a piece of property that has, let's call it environmental merit or some sort of other merit and is valued at one price, and then the valuation of that highest and best use is valued at another price. And again, that difference is the deduction that the client would be able to take. How do you sort of thread that needle or how does the valuation firm really think about that? And what are they looking for when they value these types of situations? Are there best practices? How do you strengthen your case if scrutiny comes later? Good question. So the picking a reputable valuation company is absolutely key. It being truly arm's length is absolutely critical. The valuation firm needs to be able to do their work independent of the client. And if it is going to be a, if it's suitable for a solar farm, if you can get approvals, if you can negotiate a power purchase agreement, if there's transmission distribution on or near the property, and you can build a business plan that that we know we can build a solar farm on, and then you decide to go get a valuation on that, either for funding that solar farm or potentially for conserving that property, if that's your choice, that valuation firm will look at, okay, here's a solar farm, here's the discounted cash flow value, and here's the value of that property as a solar facility. 
So again, choice of highest and best use is, it sounds like is extremely important. And you get into the notion of solar farms, I would say maybe things like mineral rights or putting a golf course or a real estate development on the property are sort of typical highest and best uses that you would, in a sense, forsake in terms of getting the the deduction for your conservation easement. Is there any nuance in terms of picking one versus the other? Obviously, you can't sort of go for mineral rights if you don't have anything of value underneath the ground. How do you think about that in terms of, of structuring or positioning the conservation easement so that it not only provides the, the greatest amount of deduction, but is also defensible from a business plan perspective? Well, I think when you're considering property that you own, whether as an individual or in a partnership, you are looking to have an understanding of what is the highest and best use of my property. And then I have choices I can make. One is I can decide to develop the property because it has a value that is appealing to me. Two is, okay, now I have that development plan and I have that valuation. I think I'm just going to hold the property because I think that it's going to appreciate from this point forward. Or I can decide I want to protect the environment and choose to kill the value of that property, conserve it into perpetuity, and thereby doing, I'll get a non-cash charitable deduction on my tax return, which has a 15-year carry forward. So one of the things that the IRS is taking a look at is the concept of the syndicated conservation easement versus a direct easement. Can you tell us the difference between the two? Well, the difference between the two is one is Fraser Rice owns a piece of land and as an individual landholder decides to conserve his property. The syndicated partnership approach is bringing investors in who will own a piece of property and will have a decision to make as an investor. One would be to develop the business plan as presented or to hold the property or to adopt the green plan and vote to have the property permanently conserved. And by the way, Congress is agnostic to who owns the land. It's not contemplated, whether it's an individual or a partnership. The only entity that can own it is a subchapter us. So the syndicated ones where where people are going into the transaction and voting to conserve the property later and then getting the benefit of the deduction under sort of the IRS scrutiny, how are you advising them to think about that type of transaction? It sounds like it's got a little more risk than than the direct easement, and therefore you have to go in with your eyes open. Yeah, I mean, to, you, just, you just nailed it. So, you know, the kind of that ideal client is that individual who has an interest and a desire to preserve land and protect our environment and wildlife and endangered species, et cetera. And you're right, the syndicated transactions have come under a further IRS scrutiny. So as an investor, it's certainly something that you should consider when you're deciding whether to make an investment in a piece of property that may have a conservation easement attached to it. The notable is that the law states that the entity, if it's a partnership, is the entity that can be audited by the IRS inside of a three-year window, not the individual taxpayer. 
Yeah. So let's take that further. So if the IRS were to audit the partnership and sort of take a look at it and determine whether it makes sense, whether it passes its its idea of scrutiny, et cetera, how does that filter down to the individual who invested in it? What should they be thinking about as a possible outcome from that audit? So there are three outcomes. One is no action. So the deduction stands. The second is a clawback or a reduced amount of the deduction, and that would be based upon the valuation. So when you get to federal tax court four to five years down the road, a judge will decide, is this valuation legitimate? Is it lower? Is it higher? There have been outcomes that have been higher and the valuation has been increased. So a clawback or a total knockout of 100% of the deduction. And that would be caused by a procedural or what we call a footfall, where you didn't follow the processes and procedures as the law prescribes in your documentation. So, and based on what you were just saying before, if you're the if you're an investor in one of these partnerships and and getting the deduction, it's probably a good practice to reserve amounts in case of scrutiny later for a period of time. How long would you say an investor should sort of build in for IRS scrutiny and when they can feel confident that the that the deduction is firm? Well, the IRS has a 3-year window that They can audit within, and after that three years, they do not, unless it's fraud, they do not have any further action that they can take. So at the end of three years, if there's no action, then if you have invested that money and kept it aside, then, you know, I would be of total confidence to do what you want with the money. You know, we do advise clients to just invest that money. If there is an audit, total time will probably be year six or year seven before there's any kind of decision at the federal tax court level. And again, it could be no action, action, or full reduction of the deduction. But assume for a second that there's a clawback of 15 or 20% due to valuation. If you had had that money and that, that extra money due to the tax deduction that you took and you invested that money in the market and the market return, normal returns, you can see that the math will likely still work in your favor. So going back to the math for a second, the sort of beginning value of the raw land, let's say that that's X, and then the valuation of potential improvements that you are forsaking for the conservation, what is a good back of the envelope number for this to make sense? Is it 2X? Is it 4X? Is it 10X? And then against that backdrop, what do you think is sort of a good situation to present before the IRS? I think the valuation should dictate what the deduction is. So if you paid a million dollars for a piece of property and that piece of property has the highest and best use of $5 million, then there's your deduction, $5 million. If it's Four million, then it's four million. If it's eight million, it's eight million. I mean, it is really based upon what the highest and best use of that land is. And if you bought that property for ten thousand dollars and it's now worth ten million dollars, well, you know, so be it. 
Got it. So it's, you know, it's very fact specific and it, it sounds like it goes back again to the role of valuations and making sure that when you're sort of papering the transaction and getting things formally put in place that that what you have are real valuations in accordance with the highest and best use and that you're not playing reindeer games with with those types of things seeking a deduction. If it's a legitimate transaction, it's a legitimate transaction. Does that sound pretty accurate? That's 100% right. And it is all really needs to be independently put together. All processes and procedures have to be followed. And then we have really good outcomes where we're preserving land into perpetuity for all of the great conservation reasons that we, we've talked about here. And the client is also getting a non-cash charitable deduction on their tax return where by law, they can deduct up to 50% of their AGI on an annual basis with a 15-year carry forward. If clients have land at their disposal and aren't sure what to do with it, what is the best sort of rule of thumb or best way to think about how long or how much effort it takes to put these types of structures in place? I would suggest they have a conversation with us and we can walk them through the whole process. And from identifying the piece of property to getting the conservation easement sort of put in place, how long does that usually take? Well, we work with a couple of groups that are in the business of identifying land that is worthy of conservation. A baseline study is done on the conservation values of that property, and that's typically a 90-day process. Got it. And then the ideal client, maybe just confirm what would be sort of a notion that I would have would be, you know, someone who has property that that is interesting from a easement perspective, but also high incomes, both current and possibly future with which to use the deduction. Any other client attributes that stick out as being good here? I would say that that's a really good definition and any client that has their own property that may be having a liquidity event this year, next year, the following year. Got it. So to net against sort of a capital gains event that represents more of a spike than sort of a a trailing income. Correct. So for those people who are interested in this type of thing, what is the best way to get a hold of you to find out more? Yeah, just pick up the phone and call me 201-248-3721 or email me at me at humancapitalrisk.com. And humancapitalrisk.com, does that lead to uh, a website that people can find out more? Correct. Great. Well, that'll be in the show notes, and I'll make sure that all of your contact information is there too. Michael, thanks so much for being on and, and helping put a little context around this interesting and very noteworthy type of transaction that we're seeing a lot of. And in the meantime, we just came off of a Super Bowl, and it's Valentine's Day today, and all sorts of fun stuff. What do you do to relax as people are coming to you with lots of these? Uh, there's got to be some downtime. Well, I'm looking forward to headed back down to Florida and play some golf. Not as well as you, but I will hit the ball often. And then looking forward to getting back up here for early spring kayaking in the sound. Oh, terrific. And one last thing, this conservation component that I, and I forgot to ask this before, anything in Congress or in the lawmaking world that's popped up that you're keeping an eye on from a legislative front? Yeah, always. It's not front and center right now. It was last year. The, the bill, two bills were removed. I do think that there is positive motion with multiple stakeholders, including Congress, to 
sort something out that preserves this 40-year-old program for conserving property, conserving land into perpetuity. And when it was first enacted by Congress with bipartisan support 40 years ago, it was to preserve land for agriculture, farming, and wildlife preservation. And as we fast forward to today, land conservation is more important than ever before if we really want to protect the environment, reduce the carbon footprint, and the integrity of that program as a tool to further protect the environment, I think really needs to have its own perpetuity to it. Otherwise, people are just going to develop their property. Right. Well, that makes sense. Michael, thanks for being on. We'll have your contact information up there and continued success. Thanks, Fraser. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.